Welcome to tape number 12 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with our reading of chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. How different is this heaven from the Mahometan paradise, which, if real, could gratify only carnal and sensual sinners? Yet the imaginations of many, and their aspirations too, with the Bible in their hands, are little better than those of Mahometans or pagans. All speculations of heathen philosophers about the chief good or the enjoyments of their imaginary gods, little g, are so gross and brutish as to demonstrate the all-important truth that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 And it is too evident that some modern philosophers are as little acquainted as Nicodemus with the humbling doctrines of the gospel. The society of learned men making perpetual advance in natural science, especially in astronomy, would seem to be the highest conception of happiness which too many modern philosophers can reach. They know not that some of the elementary teachings of the Holy Scripture, such as without holiness no man can see the Lord, and that this indispensable preparation for heavenly felicity consists in the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The hundreds of diverse and conflicting opinions of learned writers on the Summum bonum, or cheap good, proves to demonstration that without supernatural revelation and regeneration, man cannot conceive in what happiness consists. Thus far is the description of the heavenly state, and how little can we know or even conceive of the glory and felicity of the upper sanctuary. We must still say with the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul, I hath not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Isaiah 64, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Verses 6 and 7. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The angel assures the apostle and all who read that these sayings are faithful and true, however sublime and incomprehensible, 
however incredible to infidels, however contradicted and misinterpreted by anti-Christian apostates and enthusiasts, they are all from the Lord God of the Holy Prophets, from Jesus Christ and God the Father, chapter 1, 1. All prophets who wrote any part of the Bible were holy men of God, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Of these things, some were, were shortly to be done, and all in regular series would be accomplished in due time. Behold, I come quickly. Christ is the speaker here and declares that each one is blessed that keepeth the sayings of this book. This benediction was pronounced on such at the beginning of this revelation, chapter 1, verse 3, and it is repeated by its immediate divine author to encourage all to study it. This blessing is not to be expected by any who merely read or hear, but by those only who keep the sayings of this prophecy. Its author foreknew its enemies and corruptors. Verses 8 and 9. And I saw John, and I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of, the, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. A second time John attempts to act. Excuse me. A second time John attempts an act of idolatry. While we may wonder at this, let us not fail to admire the wonderful wisdom of God in permitting his servant to fall as he did in the case of our first father, Adam, that he might take occasion more fully to display his glory in bringing good out of evil. The apocalypse is directed chiefly against that primary feature of the great Antichrist, idolatry. This was part of the mystery of iniquity which did already work in the time of the apostles, Colossians 2.18, and was to be fully developed afterwards, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. This second rebuke of an apostle by one of the most exalted of creatures forever answers all arguments of papists or others who plead for or palliate the worshipping of angels or souls of men. Idolaters worship angels and souls when absent, as though they were omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, thus giving the glory to creatures of these divine perfections, whereas this heavenly messenger, when present, keenly resents this indignity to his and the apostles' adorable Creator and Lord. Once more, the angel directs John and all men to join him and all the heavenly host in observing the first and great commandment, Worship God, chapter 5, 11-14. This angelic rebuke leaves papists forever without excuse, and consequently all others who deny the supreme deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet worship him. Verses 10 to 12. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy, filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Christ himself addresses John in person. He had done so at the beginning of these glorious scenes of, of the future. Chapter 1, verse 8. Now he appears again in glory, though not described as before that he may thus authenticate and close the vision. 
Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Why is this? The reason is a sign because the time is at hand when they shall begin to be verified in actual history. The case was different in Daniel's time who was inspired by the same omniscient spirit to predict the same events. O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the vision even to the time of the end. Daniel 12 verse 4 If the vision of the empires of Persia and Greece was to be for many days, chapter 8 verse 26, then the rise, reign, and overthrow of the Roman Empire were still more remote. No wonder that Daniel, with becoming humility but intense interest, inquired, O oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Such was the subdued anxiety of other prophets, 1 Peter 1.10. And here we may once for all notice the three distinct periods mentioned by Daniel as measuring the duration of the Roman Empire, the Roman apostasy, as, and as they hear upon the promised and desirable millennium. I'm sorry, let me read that again. And here we may once for all notice the three distinct periods mentioned by Daniel as measuring the duration of the Roman Empire, the Roman apostasy, and as they hear upon the promised and desirable millennium. The two prophets, Daniel and John, agreed in fixing and limiting the domination of the Antichrist to 1260 years. This agreement has been already pointed out. The Lord, however, to allay the laudable anxiety of his greatly beloved servant Daniel, makes mention of two other periods of time, 1290 and 1335 days or years. Chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Now, when we have manifold assurances that the great apostasy shall terminate with the close of the 1260 years, we may venture humbly to suppose that the next 30 years may be occupied in the conversion of the Jews and the remaining 45 in the effectual calling of the residue of the gentle nations, so as to bring the kingdoms of the earth and the church of Christ to perfect organization and visible harmony and the whole population of the globe into voluntary and avowed subjection to the Lord and his anointed to perfect millennial splendor the nearest approximation to heaven Romans 11, 25 and 26 Psalm 102 verses 15 and 16 but who shall live when God doeth this Numbers 24 verse 23 the divine author of this book having given to mankind a complete and sufficient revelation of his will containing invitations and warnings at this juncture gives intimation that obstinate sinners shall at length be left to the consequences of their own free and perverse choice, unjust and filthy still, no further means to be employed for their conviction, but those who have embraced the offer of the gospel shall be confirmed forever in holiness and happiness, righteousness and holy still. He also repeats the assurances of his sudden appearance to reward every man according to as his work shall be. The recompense which he brings with will be of debt or justice to the impenitent believer, but wholly of free grace to the believer. For the works of each class shall follow them as decisive evidence of their respective characters. Chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter, uh, verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
The Lord Christ here declares and asserts the eternity of his personal subsistence and official standing as an all-sufficient guarantee of his ability and authority to deal with the righteous and the wicked, as also to bring to pass all events by his providence which are here predicted. The same guarantee he had given at the beginning of the Apocalypse, chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Those who do his commandments are believers, John 14, verse 15, and no others can obtain a right to the tree of life. All the blessings of Christ's purchase, for without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, verse 6, and this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, 1 John 5, verse 3. By the deeds of the law, keeping the commandments, whether moral or ceremonial, shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God, or merit a right to the tree of life, or to enter in through the gates into the city. This right, power, or privilege is confined to those and to those only who receive and believe on the name of Christ. John 1, verse 12. They who serve the Lord Christ are entitled to the reward of the inheritance, Colossians 3.24, and in keeping of his commandments there is great reward, Psalm 19, verse 11. This reward is of grace, not of debt to any of the children of Adam, not of works lest any man should boast, Romans 11, verse 6, and Ephesians 2, verse 9. And when the last elected sinner, pertaining to the whole company of the redeemed, shall have been called, justified, and sanctified, then, with gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Psalm 45, verse 15. Verse 15. For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Without are dogs. These characters have been excluded by the righteous and unalterable sentence of the judge of quick and dead, having their part in the lake of fire, for there is no intimation here or elsewhere of any purgatory or intermediate place where the delusive hope of those which, who love and make lies, flatter themselves and their blind votaries. Oh, that such sinners in Zion and out of Zion might be afraid that timely fearfulness might surprise these hypocrites, that they might ponder those awful questions. Who amongst us shall dwell with the devouring, devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Isaiah 33, verse 14. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. This is the angel whose ministry the Lord Christ was pleased to employ in making known to the church through his servant John most of the discoveries of this book, chapter 1, 1, and 11. Many other angels have indeed been employed by the mediator as the ministers of his providence, but this one seems to have been the principal all along. None of these heavenly messengers, however, was found competent to reveal the purposes of God, chapter 5, verse 3. To this work the eternal Son of God alone was found adequate by nature and office, the Lamb that had been slain. Christ has a personal property in the angels as he is their creator and Lord, and as they are his creatures and willing servants, mine angel, 
This is perfectly reasonable, for he is the root of David in his divine nature and the offspring of David in his human nature. Romans 1, Romans 1 verse 3. God-man, mediator. And here let it be remarked that in speaking of writing of our Redeemer, there appears to be no scriptural warrant for the popular phrase, the union of the two natures, Christ as man or as God. These expressions militate, militate against the unity of his divine nature and personality and are calculated, we do not say intended, to mislead or confuse the mind of his disciples. In him personally, not in the Father or the Holy Ghost, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. By John, the descent of Christ's human nature is traced through David here because of the covenant of royalty. By Paul, he is represented as being of the seed of Abraham by reason of the more extended relation involved in the covenant of grace, Hebrews 2.16. He is also the bright, even the morning star. This may be in reference to the less luminous stars in his right hand, chapter 1, verse 16 and 20, and by way of contrast with them, but he takes this name chiefly to intimate that he is the author of all supernatural illumination, whether in the kingdom of grace or of glory. The Lamb is the light thereof, chapter 21, verse 23. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Here is the unrestricted, universal call of the gospel to come to Christ for eternal life. We do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4:14. 4, the invitation is manifold and pressing. The Spirit, by the word and conscience, says, Come. The bride, the church militant and triumph, says, Come. Everyone that heareth the invitation is warranted to say to others, Come. Let everyone that thirsts for true and lasting felicity, Come. If anyone be in doubt whether his desire be spiritual or not, it is added for his encouragement as well as sufficient warrant. Let whosoever will take of the water of life freely. Any sinner of Adam's race may wash and be clean in that fountain open for sin and for uncleanness. May with confidence and pleasure draw water from the wells of salvation. Zechariah 13.1 and Isaiah 12 verse 3. Who can resist these calls, invitations, and persuasions and be guiltless? Or who can devise easier terms of reconciliation to an offended God than are here addressed to the chief of sinners? Verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, uh, excuse me, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Those were verses 18 and 19. For I testify, he who is the faithful and true witness closes this book of prophecy with a solemn and awful sanction. These tremendous threatenings by the Lord God of the holy prophets may well cause all who read or hear to tremble. For who can abide his indignation? 
While the prophecy of this book is primarily intended, all other parts of the Bible are included in this solemn conclusion. For doubtless our Lord intended the Apocalypse to be a close to the whole canon. The threatening is twofold, corresponding to the criminality. Learned, bold, and irreverent by excuse me, biblical critics, enthusiasts, and pretenders to new revelations are in danger of these judgments. The plagues that are written in this book are such as will utterly destroy the presumptuous sinner who adds to these things. And he that impiously takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy exposes himself to the like awful punishment. God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Tremendous doom. All that which he seemed to have shall be taken away. Luke 8 verse 18 Great will be the sudden and unexpected loss. These awful denunciations, however, have a special reference like the rest of the threatened judgments in this book to the great, continued, and defiant impieties of the apostate church of Rome. She has added her traditions to the scriptures as part and principal part of the rule of faith. She has taken away the scriptures from the body of her people or shut them up in an unknown tongue so that every man may not hear in his own tongue wherein he was born the wonderful works of God. Acts 2, 8, and 11. This is one of the articles of Rome's, Rome's indictment here. And whatever modern infidelity or spurious charity may suggest, this theft of God's word and robbery of his people is not to be expiated with burnt offerings or sacrifice. And he who scans all time foresaw this attempt of the dragon and his allies to deprive the church and the world of the lively oracles. Therefore, as he promised a blessing on the reader of this book, as it were on the title page, here in the close he appends a malediction that all who read or hear may be deterred from such sacrilege. Verse 20. He who testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He which testified these things is the Lord Jesus. Again, he reminds all to whom these presents come of his certain and speedy appearance. These frequent assurances are not vain repetitions. They are intended to strengthen the faith and counteract the despondency of the saints and to alarm the consciences of his enemies. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, 4, 8, and 10, Jude 14 and 15. To this promise of his coming, John responds in the name of the whole church. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, to fulfill these predictions in their promises and threatenings, to be glorified in his saints and admired in all them that believe. So shall they ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. These are also the words of John. He had just been addressing the Lord Jesus, and his next words are addressed to the seven churches. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 11. Or to all who read or hear the words of this book, but especially the church general. This is a concise form of the apostolic benediction, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 18, which is sometimes amplified by the naming 
the fa- by naming the Father and the Son, or at other times the three divine persons, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. However, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is originally from God the Father, procured for us by Jesus Christ, and communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. And unto the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let equal, undivided, and everlasting glory be ascribed by all the subjects of his regenerating and sanctifying grace throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I would now like to read an appendix that is attached to the end of this book um, for you, beginning with the heading, The New Jerusalem. Interpreters are much divided in opinion as to the import of this symbol. Some think it represents the church on earth during the period of the millennium, while others, no less learned and pious, consider it as an emblematical representation of the heavenly state. Of those who acquiesce in the former view, some consider the arguments quite conclusive. It may be conceded that much may be advanced and with great plausibility in support of this position. Perhaps the most specious arguments to this purpose are such as the following. Quote, that the new Jerusalem is distinguished from the old because of the superior light and grace of the present dispensation of the covenant. Moreover, the glowing descriptions of the church militant given by the prophets, especially Isaiah, are thought to be as boldly rhetorical as those of John. Yet those lofty flights are confessedly descriptive of the church on earth. Besides, who can conceive how the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into the heavenly state, or how are the leaves of the tree of life for the healing of the nations when there are no nations to be healed? To these arguments, the following answers may be given. The church is one under all changes of dispensation, and by what name soever she is called. But it does not appear that we are warranted by scripture usage to view the new Jerusalem as a designation of the church in her militant state. She is indeed sometimes called in the New Testament by Old Testament names, as when Paul calls her by the name Zion, Hebrews 12.22. But he does not say New Zion. Again, when our Lord promises, as in Revelation 3.12, to reward him that overcometh, it must be supposed from the connection that, as in all similar cases of spiritual conflict, this reward is to be conferred in a future state, heaven. But part of the reward he describes in these words, I will write upon him the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. Surely it may be supposed without presumption that in this place New Jerusalem means heaven. Nor is the assumption true that the descriptive language of the Old Testament prophets is always to be understood of the church on earth. For instance, can the following language, Isaiah 33:24, be predicted of the saints while in the body? The inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The glory and honor of the nations are the nation, saints of God, the excellent, who, while here, are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and doubtless nations, as well as families and individuals, have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed them for their sakes. Genesis 30, verse 27, and 39, verse 5 and that he has also reproved kings and destroyed nations for their sake. Psalm 105:14, Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4. And when all the saints who are to rule the nations, Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6, 
for a thousand years shall have been brought home to glory, then emphatically will the glory and honor of the nations be brought into the new Jerusalem. And as to the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations, it may be remarked that this sanative virtue will have been experienced by national societies on earth, and there is not, and there is not, there never was, nor ever will be any other healing medicine for them. Ezekiel 42, verse 12. In addition to what has been said, it is worthy of notice that the tree of life, in allusion to the delights of the Garden of Eden, which was an emblem of heaven, is mentioned in the Apocalypse near the beginning and end of the book, chapters 2, 7, and 22, 2. Now, we are told expressly that this tree is in the midst of paradise, but we learn both from our Lord and the Apostle Paul that paradise signifies heaven. Today shall thou be with me in paradise, said Christ to the penitent thief. I was caught up into paradise, that is, the third heaven, said Paul. Did Christ and Paul mean the visible or the invisible church militant by the name paradise? But the tree of life flourishes there and all the redeemed eat of its fruit. They are where the tree is. The tree is in paradise and paradise is heaven itself. Therefore, we are warranted to conclude with certainty that New Jerusalem is a symbol of the church triumphant and consequently that those parts or chapters 21 and 22 which are symbolic structure are descriptive of the heavenly state. The Antichrist This word does not occur in the Apocalypse nor in any other book of the New Testament except the first and second epistles by the Apostle John. There it is found in the singular and plural form, 1 John 2.18 and 22 and 4 verse 3 and 2 verse 7. The apostles in their ministry had spoken frequently and familiarly to the disciples of this personage as an enemy of God and man. You have heard that Antichrist shall come. Remember ye not, asked Paul, that when I was yet with you, I told you of these things? 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. Paul blames his countrymen, the Hebrews, that they had need that one should teach them again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, Hebrews 5, 12. And it is just so now in the case of most professing Christians, learned and illiterate, that yet need to be taught again what is meant by Antichrist. All who are acquainted with the sentiments of the reformers of the 16th and 17th centuries are aware that their conceptions of this enemy were vague and confused, persecuted as heretics and apostates from the only true church, the Church of Rome, the reformers very naturally concluded that the Pope, or the Church, of which he is the visible head, was the Antichrist, and this opinion is very generally held at the present day. Mr. Faber, however, dissents from this popular notion, and with much confidence and plausibility broaches a new theory of his own. His style is always forcible, and so perspicuous that he cannot be misunderstood. In his dissertation on the prophecies, he lays down the following canon or rule for expositors. Before a, comment, quote, before a commentator can reasonably expect his own system to be adopted by others, he must show likewise that the expositions of his predecessors are erroneous in those points wherein he differs from them. To enforce this rule, he adds, it will be found 
to be the only way in which there is even a probability of attaining to the truth. End quote. I can neither admit the justness of his rule nor the conclusiveness of his reason. For by its adoption of making many books there would be no end and the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. To deduce the truth from any portion of God's word, it is by no means necessary the expositor shall undertake the Herculean task of refuting all the heresies and vagaries which men of corrupt minds have pretended or attempted to wring out of it. But, as Mr. Faber is not to be reckoned in this category, I shall pay him so much deserved respect as to apply to himself his own rule in some following particulars. This ends the reading of side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. By a formal syllogism, Mr. Faber proposes to overthrow the generally received interpretation of the term Antichrist, that it means the papacy or the Church of Rome. Thus he reasons, he is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son, but the Church of Rome never denied either the Father or the Son. Therefore, the Church of Rome cannot be the Antichrist intended by St. John. End quote. Now, in this argument, which seems to be so clear and conclusive, there is a latent sophism, an assumption contrary to the Scriptures. The false assumption is that the word denieth is univocal, that is, that it has in the Bible, and on this doctrinal point in particular, only one sense, whereas this is not the case. The Church of Rome does indeed profess to know the Father and the Son, but in works denieth both, both 1 Timothy 5.8 and Titus 1.16. Therefore, Mr. Faber's conclusion is not sustained by his premises, and the Church of Rome might be the Antichrist for anything that his syllogism says to the contrary. Mr. Favor imagined that Republican France, infidel and atheistical France, was the Antichrist, and he labored with much ingenuity to sustain his position by applying to revolutionary France the latter part of the 11th chapter of Daniel, together with the prophecies of Paul, Peter, and Jude. I presume that most divines and intelligent Christians are long since convinced by the developments of providence that he was mistaken. The commotions of the French Revolution and the military achievements of the first Napoleon, however important, to peninsular Europe were on much too limited a scale to correspond with the magnitude and duration of the great Antichrist achievements. They were, however, owing to their proximity to Britain and their threatening aspect of sufficient importance to excite the alarm and rouse the political antipathies of the Vicar of Stockton upon Tees. Mr. Faber's Antichrist is an infidel king, willful king, an atheistical king, a professed atheist of short duration, and his influence of limited geographical extent. He is not in most of these features the Antichrist of prophecies, whose baleful influence is coextensive with Christendom, and whose duration is to be 1260 years. Mr. Faber's Faber's erudition is to be respected, his imagination admired, but his political feelings to be lamented. Indeed, his very ecclesiastical title of office, vicar, is itself partly indicative and symbolical of the prophetic Antichrist. I do not believe that infidel France, whether Republican or 
monarchical, nor the papacy, nor the Church of Rome, is the Antichrist of the Apostle John. Yet I do believe that all these are essential elements in his composition. The following are the principal component parts of that complex moral person, as defined by the Holy Spirit, by which any disciple of Christ without much learning may identify John's Antichrist. His elemental parts are three and only three, and all presented in the 13th chapter of Revelation. The beast of the sea, verses 1 and 2, the beast of the earth, verse 11, and the image of, or of, or to the first beast, verse 14, that is, the Roman Empire, the Roman Church, and the Pope, all these in combination professing Christianity. These, with their adjuncts as subordinate agencies, constitute the uh, apocalyptic Antichrist. Besides this personage, well defined by the inspired prophets, Daniel, Paul, John, and others, there is no other Antichrist. An infidel king, a professed atheist, as distinct from this one and symbolized in prophetic revelation, I find not. I conclude that such a personage is wholly chimerical, framed as a creature of a lively imagination. The Image of the Beast Mr. Favor is unsuccessful in his interpretation of the image of the beast. His reasoning is ingenious, specious, and intelligible as usual. He labors to prove that the worshipping of images by the papists is the meaning of the symbol. Material images, however, whether of papal origin or otherwise, are harmless vanities, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. Jeremiah 10 verse 5 The case is quite otherwise with this image. It has life, speaks, and has power to kill. Revelation 13 verse 15 These properties of John's image are are so opposite of those of the papal images that they effectually confute Mr. Favor's fanciful, not to say whimsical, theory. It has been already shown that the image symbolizes the papacy, the facsimile of the Roman Empire. The beast, deadly wound. The Erastian heresy, as usual, comment of prelacy, will readily account for Mr. Faber's explanation of the deadly wound, which the first beast received in his sixth head. Constantine, he thinks, inflicted that wound by abolishing paganism. He writes as though the beast had been actually killed and had lain literally dead for a period of nearly three centuries, vis a vis from three. 13 till 606. Yet the apostle assures us that the deadly wound was healed. The beast did not die. Daniel gives no hint of the death of his fourth beast, which is the same as John's beast of the sea, until his final destruction at the close of the 1260 years. It was in fact under the reign of Constantine and his successors that ambitious pastors were nurtured into anti-Christianism prelates and passed by a natural transition into popery. The empire never ceased to be a beast during the whole period of its continuance. The sixth head was wounded, but the beast still survived. The sixth or imperial form of government was changed, but that change brought no advantage to the Christian church, either in her doctrine or order. As a distinct horn of the beast, the British nation with her hierarchy is easily traceable to mystic Babylon in point of maternity. Since, as well as ever before the time of Henry VIII, spiritual fornication has ever been the crime of the British establishment, this historical fact requires no proof. Mr. Faber, 
seems to me to give too little prominence in his exposition to Daniel and John's beast of the sea as an enemy to Christ. Indeed, he appears to overlook the leading idea involved in the name Antichrist as a substitutionary false and therefore inimical or hostile Christ. Instead of keeping before his mind the glorious person of the mediator as a special object of Antichrist enmity, as prophecy requires, he places before him the church or the gospel instead of Christ. Hence, he writes thus, we quote, We find in the predictions of St. John, which, why not St. Daniel, in parentheses, two great enemies of the gospel, popery and Mohammedism, end quote. Then he adds, quote, a third power is introduced, end quote, from his preface, page 7. This third power he calls willful infidel a king, and, as already noticed, interprets it of atheistical France. Now, it will be evident to the intelligent reader that among his three powers, considered by him as enemies to the gospel, he has entirely lost sight of the seven-headed ten-horned beast and his hostility to Christ. He has, in fact, manifestly substituted his imaginary willful king, infidel France, for the Roman Empire, the beast of Daniel and John, the agent that slays the witnesses, Revelation 11, verse 7. To almost every expositor, and in his lucid moments, even to Mr. Favor himself, it is apparent that the Roman Empire is the primary element in the complex personage that wars against the Lamb. Even kings are but horns of the beast, and popery but a horn. Daniel 7, verse 20, Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13. It is therefore a great mistake on the part of this learned author to feign an antichrist distinct from the three confederated enemies of Christ and his witnesses, enemies so clearly pointed out in prophecy by appropriate and intelligible symbols, the beast with ten, and the beast with two horns, and the image of the first. These three, all professing the Christian religion and practically denying it, without the shadow of a doubt, constitute the antichrist of John, 1 John 2, verses 19 to 21. This is the identical enemy described by Daniel and according to the inspired predictions of both prophets doomed to eternal destruction. Daniel 7, verse 11, Revelation 19, verse 20. Hence, it is obvious that Mr. Faber's willful king is wholly a creature of his own fancy, constituting no feature of the prophetic Antichrist. The Little Book this symbol is in the 10th chapter, evidently distinguished from the one in the 5th chapter. It is considered by several interpreters as containing all that follows to the end of the book. According to this view, it would be larger than the sealed book, chapter 5, verse 1. Such a view is altogether untenable, involving, as it does, almost a palatable contradiction. The little book is indeed comprehended in the seal book as a part of the whole, or it may be viewed as an appendix or codicil, or perhaps still more correctly as a parenthesis, interrupting the series of the trumpets that the object of the seventh or last woe trumpet may be thus described and rendered intelligible when sounded. Mr. Faber is correct in saying the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters in point of chronology run parallel to each other, but he is mistaken when he says the little book comprehends these four chapters. It comprehends only so much as intervenes between the close of the ninth chapter and the fifteenth verse of the eleventh chapter, 
or in other words, between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. To be more correct and explicit, the tenth chapter introduces the little book and the eleventh chapter from the first to the fourteenth verse inclusive exhibits an abstract of its contents, a condensed narrative or mere outline of the contest during the twelve hundred and sixty years. The Death of the Witnesses Many divines have considered the death of the two witnesses as consisting in a moral slaying equivalent to apostasy. Mr. Favor views their life and death as altogether political. He censors Mr. Galloway for want of strict adherence to unity of symbolical interpretation, but he inadvertently falls into the same error, assuming, as he does, that the two witnesses are the Old and New Testament churches Where is the unity of symbolical interpretation when he tells us that the witnesses were politically slain in the disastrous battle of Mulberg in the year 1547 by the total rout of the Protestants under the lead of the Elector of Saxony and the Landgrave of Hesse? The political death of two churches in the battle of Mulberg, such language exemplifies neither the accuracy of historic narrative nor the unity of symbolical interpretation, nor does it accord with any rule, excuse me, with another rule of the writers, one of his three cardinal rules, namely, that no interpretation of a prophecy is valid except the prophecy agree in every particular with the event to which it is supposed to relate. Mistaking the character of the witnesses as one of the principal symbols of the apocalypse, he is unable to ascertain in history either their identity or work, their life or their death. Having imagined their political death in 1547, he supposes their resurrection to political life in 1550 by the accession of Edward VI to the throne of England and the defeat of the Duke of Mecklenburg in the October of that year. Of course, these witnesses, according to Mr. Faber's interpretation, resumed their function of prophesying so soon as they were restored to political life. But we look in vain for the prophesying of the mystic witnesses after their ascension to the symbolic heaven, Revelation 11, verse 12. As we have shown to the readers of these notes, their lives and their testimony or prophesying terminate altogether. Chapter 11, verse 7 and 12 verse 11 the mark of the beast with regard to the mark of the beast Mr. Faber thinks with Sir Isaac Newton that it is the cross page 176 this thought has indeed been almost universal in the minds of Protestants so deep seated is this conviction in the popular belief that one is deemed chargeable with temerity if not something worse who would call its grounds into question popular opinion or belief in matters of this spiritual and mystical nature is, however, of very little weight in the estimation of such as are accustomed to try the spirits. Although the mark was to be received at the instance and by the authority of the two-horned beast of the earth, it was not enjoined as a mark of devotion to himself. It was manifestly commanded by him as a tessara of loyalty to the ten-horned beast of the sea, the obvious symbol of corrupt and tyrannical civil power. Instead, therefore, of the cross as a sign of devotion to popery, of membership in the Church of Rome as identifying with the beast mark, this mark is evidently and demonstrably the tessera of loyalty to the Roman Empire, 
immoral civil power, and this too in any of the dependencies of that iron empire. Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 7 verse 7. From the errors and vagaries of this learned and acute expositor, some of which have been pointed out, it is apparent that no amount of intellectual culture, no natural powers of discrimination, no logical or metaphysical acumen will comp compensate for the lack of early and accurate training in the knowledge of supernatural revelation. Of the prophetical and priestly offices of the Redeemer, some of the English prelates have written with a force perspicuity and zeal against the heresies of the Roman apostasy, not excelled by the writings of those who have descended from the semi-papal hierarchy of the Anglican Church. But on the royal office of Emmanuel, their prelatic training and association seem to have blinded their minds. No bishop, no king, is a maxim which seems to lie at the foundation of all their political decisions and speculations, and which gives a tincture to all their expositions of prophecy. Nevertheless, even in this field of labor, the diligent student may consult with much advantage the learned works of such writers of the two as the two Newtons, Kett, Galloway, Whitaker, Zouch, with their predecessors, Loman, Mead, and others. After all, the best works to be obtained as helps to understand the prophetic parts of Scripture will be found in the labors of those who, from age to age, have obeyed the gracious call of Christ, who have come out from mystical Babylon, from the Romish communion, from the mother and her harlot daughters, and who have associated more or less intimately with the witnesses. Among these may be consulted with profit the works of Durham, Mason, and MacLeod. But while searching after the mind of God revealed in this part of his word, let us never exercise implicit faith in the teachings of any fallible expositor. Let us always regard the injunction of our apostle, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Of course, the only infallible standard by which we can try the spirits is the whole word of God, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The First Resurrection Bishop Newton, among those divines distinguished in ecclesiastical history as millenarians, May, re, may be regarded as one of the most learned, judicious, and cautious. The amount of deductions which this class of writers draw from the scripture phrase first resurrection and its context confirmed as they suppose by many other parts of scripture appears to be the following. All the righteous shall be raised from their graves to meet our Savior coming from heaven at the beginning of the millennium. He and these saints, clothed in real human bodies, are to dwell and reign together upon a renovated earth during that happy period. Indeed, writers on this interesting subject differ so much in detail that no well-defined theory or system can be discovered among them. The literal resurrection of the bodies of the saints and the corporal presence of Christ among them seem to be the cardinal points of agreement with this class of expositors and from this literal interpretation of the resurrection of the righteous and bodily appearance of the Savior, they either took or received the name millenarians. Other Christians, however, who differ from them in the, in the interpretation of symbols, are no less believers in a millennium than they, a thousand years of righteousness and peace on the earth. 
Bishop Newton understands this first resurrection of a particular resurrection preceding the general one at least a thousand years. It is to this first resurrection, he says, that St. Paul alludes, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, when he affirms that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, that every man shall be made alive in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. It is surprising that a person of the bishop's learning should so readily mistake the sound for the sense of the words which he quotes, while the apostle is for the comfort of the saints treating of their resurrection, he is evidently speaking of the general resurrection at the end of time. In the morning of the resurrection, Christ's members will be raised after the manner and in virtue of his resurrection, the first fruits securing the following harvest in obvious allusion to the ceremonial law. In the other case, when Paul says the dead in Christ shall rise first, does he mean before the rest of the dead? No, but before those of their redeemed brethren who shall then be alive and remain. For these shall not prevent or anticipate them which are asleep in the grave. That is, the bodies of the saints who have died shall be raised in glory before those then alive shall undergo a change equivalent to that of the resurrection. Such is manifestly the meaning of the Apostle's plain language which has no reference whatsoever to the millennium, not even the remotest illusion, nothing but a groundless preconception of the nature of the millennium will account for the sound of words taking the place of their sense in the reader's mind, and no degree of mere scholarship can obviate this propensity of the human mind in the things of the Spirit of God. Not only does the learned prelate misapprehend and misapply the text above quoted to support his theory, but he makes a gratuitous concession which is at once fatal to his scheme and inconsistent with himself. He says, Indeed, the death and resurrection of the witnesses before mentioned, Revelation 11, verses 7 and 11, appears from the concurrent circumstances of the vision to be figurative. The bishop evidently viewed the witnesses of the 11th chapter as a company altogether different from those of whom John speaks in the 20th chapter, verses 4 and 5. This is another of his surprising mistakes, for that the identical party as a moral person appears in both parts of the symbolic and allegorical representation will readily appear to any unbiased mind by an induction of the following particulars. These witnesses are to continue prophesying 1260 days or years, Revelation 11.3. Then they will be killed, verse 7. But we learn that in death they are victorious, chapter 12, verse 11. They triumph with the Lamb on Mount Zion, chapter 14, verse 1. In a similar attitude of triumph, they again appear standing on the sea of glass, chapter 15, verse 2. They are with their victorious king, chapter 17, verse 14. They are exhorted to retaliate upon mystic Babylon. Revelation 18, verse 6. They are also engaged in the last campaign with the captain of their salvation. Chapter 19, 14, and 19, and 20. And at length they are advanced to thrones of civil power to rule the nations. Chapter 20, verse 4. In fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy and the, their Savior's promise. Daniel 7, 27 and Revelation 2.26 and 27. 
The death and resurrection of the witnesses is com- compendiously stated in the former part of the 11th chapter, verses 7 to 14. But these events, epitomized again in the little book, are amplified in the sub- of subsequent chapters where we are made acquainted more fully with their enemies, their conflicts, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. In all these respects is exhibited their conformity to the example of their captain and leader. If, therefore, according to the bishop's conception, the death and resurrection of the witnesses in the 11th chapter be figurative, and if the witnesses of the 20th be the same as those in the 11th chapter, which identity I have proved, it follows incontrovertibly that the first resurrection is to be understood in a figurative sense. This interpretation may be abundantly confirmed in the following manner. The witnesses prophesy 1260 years, but since no individual persons live so long, a succession must be supposed. They are, in fact, mystic characters having their real counterpart in actual history on this earth. The scarlet-colored beast and woman, chapter 17, verse 3, are of equal duration with the witnesses and of similar mystic character and have their real counterpart in history. The witnesses are slain by the beast at the instigation of the woman, but their death is only temporary, chapter 11, verse 7 and 11. Their enemies have no more that they can do, while on the other hand the death of the beast is perdition, eternal death, chapter 17, verse 8. And in this death the woman, the false prophet, participates, chapter 19, verse 20. All this symbolic language respects Christ's enemies as corporate or organized bodies. This ends the reading of tape number 12 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Still, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.